innovative Often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it Make it way harder for them to follow What I take it Hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious bruh I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk You painted skunks You played enough I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight WHUPLP Hillsboro, North Carolina, the center of the known world. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast on 104.7 FM in Hillsboro. I am Jeff Shaw, and we have a terrific show for you today, bringing you the stories of martial arts in the Carolinas and beyond. Um, very excited about this show, been trying to get this guest on for a while. We'll tell you the specifics about that in just a second after the news segment. But before we get into any of that stuff, I need to tell you how to get a hold of the show to let us know what you think, let us know what guests you would like to hear, and let us know about upcoming events. Our email is cagesidewhoop at gmail.com. That's cagesidewhup. We are also at cagesidewhup on Twitter and Instagram. Our Facebook page is Cageside Radio. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, where if you like us, we would appreciate it if you would leave us a review. That's a, a way to introduce new folks to the show. So because we have so much going on and because we have an interview that we're really anxious to get to, we're going to get right into the news segment. And I'm going to ask you to pay particular attention to the news segment this week for reasons that will become clear later. On August 14th, U.S. Grappling is having a referee certification. That's August 14th uh, in Richmond, Virginia at Revolution BJJ. Uh, This has opened a purple belt jiu-jitsu practitioners and up. And there are two reasons you should go if you qualify. First, it's great to learn the rules. It uh, helps you become a better competitor. It helps you understand the rationale for decisions. It helps you yell at refs less, which they all appreciate. And also, it enables you to compete for free if you decide you want to work and you ref some matches they let you do two divisions for free so you lose an excuse for not competing u.s grappling gets some good referees everybody wins whup lp hillsborough north carolina the center of the known world this is the cage side concussion cast on 104.7 fm in hillsborough i am jeff shaw and we have a terrific show for you today bringing you the stories of martial arts in the carolinas and beyond um very excited about this show. Been trying to get this guest on for a while. We'll tell you the specifics about that in just a second after the news segment. But before we get into any of that stuff, I need to tell you how to get a hold of the show to let us know what you think, let us know what guests you would like to hear, and let us know about upcoming events. Our email is cagesidewhoop at gmail.com. That's cagesidewhup. We are also at cagesidewhup on Twitter and Instagram. Our Facebook page is Cageside Radio. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and stitcher where if you like us we would appreciate it if you would leave us a review that's a a way to introduce new folks to the show so because we have so much going on and because we have an interview that we're really anxious to get to we're going to get right into the news segment and i'm going to ask you to pay particular attention to the news segment this week for reasons that will become clear later 
On August 14th, U.S. Grappling is having a referee certification. That's August 14th uh, in Richmond, Virginia at Revolution BJJ. Uh, this is open to purple belt jiu-jitsu practitioners and up. Now, and there are two reasons you should go if you qualify. First, it's great to learn the rules. It uh, helps you become a better competitor. It helps you understand the rationale for decisions. It helps you yell at refs less, which they all appreciate. And also, it enables you to compete for free if you decide you want to work and you ref some matches. They let you do two divisions for free. So you lose an excuse for not competing. U.S. Grappling gets some good referees. Everybody wins. We have two other things a little bit further out. From August 25th to August 27th is Masters Seniors Worlds. That's not here in North Carolina. That's in Las Vegas. We have a bunch of people from North Carolina going, though, and I'm going to list just a few of the ones that I know. Uh, Black Belt Jason Culbreth, uh, Brown Belts Mary Holmes, John Shell, Jay Jovanovich, and Drew Culbreth, and Purple Belts, including Lee King and myself. If you're competing and I didn't list you, uh, please let us know that you're competing so we can follow your matches and report back on how you did. I would love to get some folks on the show who go out there to compete. At the very least, we'd like to post updates about your matches, so just please let us know we're competing. You can email us at cagesidewhoop at gmail.com or just post a comment on the Facebook page uh, uh, in advance of the, or after we air this show. The final thing I want to talk to you about is Toro Cup number four. Uh, that's on September 10th. Now, for those of you who don't know what Toro Cup is, a Toro Brazilian jiu-jitsu company, locally owned company uh, that I've done some work for, puts on a series of jiu-jitsu super fight cards. Those feature really impressive practitioners uh, from around the whole region. And this one, we always do these things for charity. And this one, the benefit is going to be for the Terra Ray Kids Project, which brings jiu-jitsu to youth in the favelas down in Brazil. C.J. Murdoch, who's a black belt sponsored by Toro BJJ, uh, trains and teaches out of great grappling, uh, a tremendous competitor, uh, did, a lot of, did, did some things down in Brazil where he got the opportunity to train with Terra Ray got to see some of the favela uh, jiu-jitsu project uh, firsthand and so can testify to its benefits very excited to put on a super fight card benefiting the youth down there so definitely come out mark off september 10th on your calendar and support and that'll be a really good cause another reason that you should come out to toro cup 4 on september 10th which will be at the new cage side fight company and triangle jiu-jitsu 124 lotta road in durham north carolina is this i think is going to be the best toro cup yet and let me be frank, I, I made the matches for the first three and was very proud of those. I thought those events were really fun. Uh, you know, we had some tremendous uh, contests between really great athletes. And I really got to say, I think John Bagels Telford has put together the best Toro Cup card yet. We previewed three of those matches when John was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And I know they're getting ready to release the full 15 match card in the next couple of days. So I don't want to, I don't want to spoil that, but I will tell you that I've had a look at it and there are at least four black belt matches, at least five brown belt matches. And some of these matchups are insane. Um, you are going to really, really be pleased um, when you, when you see the matches when they come out and when you come out on September 10th to watch some great jujitsu and uh, it shouldn't be forgotten, support a really great cause. So that's September 10th, Toro Cup 4. Those are just a few of the jiu-jitsu events that are coming up in and around North Carolina. So by way of telling you why I've been so excited about today's featured interview, I first need you to think a little bit about the news segment. These days when we do that news segment, it's really packed. There are almost zero weekends now where there aren't special events. Uh, when we were planning Toro Cup, we have to schedule it six months out just so we don't rub up against other exciting jiu-jitsu events like Grapplethon. 
So you have every weekend now, you have seminars by world-class teachers. You have seminars with, with elite athletes. You have super fight cards that feature the best local competitors. There are multiple tournament organizations, including U.S. Grappling, NAGA, the IBJJF, the Good Fight, all these organizations that are running events where you can compete no matter what age you are, no matter what rank you are. So you can go see belts, black belts compete every weekend. Um, you can compete every weekend no matter what belt you are. This is really exciting that the scene is growing. And so thinking about that news segment, think about this. Every week, we could spend 60 minutes just talking about those events on this show. And we don't even generally talk about the regional cards or the national cards. We just talk about the local stuff. Um, there are more opportunities now to train, to learn, and to watch jujitsu than ever before. And more people than ever before are taking advantage of that. And yet, here's an important point. When new students come into the academy where I train, especially students over 30, and we ask them, hey, how did you learn about jujitsu? At least half of them have the same story. They saw Hoist Gracie in the early UFCs beginning in 1993. That's when most of the world got introduced to jujitsu. Now, I personally am fascinated with the people, especially the Americans, who were training before the first UFC introduced jujitsu to most of the world. So if you read about jiu-jitsu history, the first 12 American black belts are known collectively as the Dirty Dozen. A lot of famous names there, a lot of legendary guys. These are the people that helped build the world that we have access to now. That world where we have all these super fight cards, all these tournaments, all these great seminars. These are the people on whose shoulders we stand. And so I think we owe them a great debt because without them, there's no us. And besides that, the stories from the early days of jiu-jitsu and Valley Tudo fighting are just incredible. So over the past months, I have reached out to several members of the Dirty Dozen to have them on this show, and our first of those interviews happens today. He's the first American student of the legendary jiu-jitsu practitioner and UFC fighter Joe Morera. According to the website BJJ Heroes, Mark Bacarizo was the fifth American to get a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. On that same website, his biography simply states this. Not much is known of Bacarizo. So when we found out that Mark Bacarizo had been living in Raleigh for four years, we knew that we needed to fix this not much is known about him stuff. Over the next 45 minutes, we're going to hear from Mark in his own words. You'll learn about how he chose to train with Joe Moreira, even though Joe didn't speak any English at the time and Mark spoke no Brazilian Portuguese. We'll go into the Gracie challenges, where the Gracies would fight anyone who showed up at their gym and Mark's experience with those. You'll hear the story about he and some of his fellow students from Joe Moreira's place got into a brawl with Tank Abbott, and how they met one of the iconic early UFC fighters, Kimo Leopoldo. You'll also learn who the toughest people Mark trained with were, and you'll hear his strongest memory of the day he got his black belt. The answer to that, by the way, might surprise you. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did conducting it. Without further ado, I'll let Mark introduce himself. I'm Mark Bacariso, uh, originally from Orange County, born and raised, and um, lived there my whole life. I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina about four years ago. Um, I, I started training you know, in martial arts when I was a kid, about seven years old, and uh, we started boxing. We had a, a guy that uh, he uh, trained, uh, Leon Spinks, he was one of his trainers, so we got into boxing, and I was always into fighting and, and that sort of sports and always in the sports. And I trained uh, with uh, Kempo Karate with Ed Parker. He's famous and, and white, you know, Ed White. Um, 
which evolved into you know training in hapkido and judo and uh uh we had a great group of guys that we trained in hapkido very tough guys i don't know if, if you're familiar with hapkido but hapkido is considered the royal korean art it's a combination of jujitsu uh, aikido and um judo so it's got joint locks and manipulations throws and everything it's just an awesome art they call the hapkido man the untouchable man and you know by then i was young in my 20s and i was uh girthy and felt real strong and real powerful and uh we trained there was one year i trained almost every day except like four days so like all these black belts we were into it and we were diehards and then the gracies came to town which you know we heard about them and some of the black belts went to see them or train with them a guy called john dill and Rod Machado, very old school, even older school than me. Um, and they, they trained and they came back to our school and started showing us some techniques. And this little guy, Rod, he uh, probably weighed about 180 pounds and I was about 225, 230. And he was making me tap. And I was like, what, what's up with this? So, you know, the Gracies had this challenge out, you know, anytime, any place. Have you heard of that? And they, they had this challenge out where you come out and anybody from anywhere could just come on a Saturday and you got to register before and you come out and you fight. So we decided to go watch it. And we went down to the Torrance Academy, um, Hordeon Gracie's school, and um, James Moran, who's a master now, and uh, a couple other guys, and we went down to, to watch. And we sat in a circle around the mat and these guys came in one by one and... and uh, the first fight I saw was uh, Hoyler Gracie, uh, Hoyan's brother, uh, Hoyce's brother. And um, he's about 5'9", 180 pounds, little guy. Tough guy, of course, little guy. And the guy he was fighting was about 230 pounds. And he submitted the guy in less than a minute. And I laughed and said, come on, come on. <laughs> that couldn't be, couldn't be possible. So I said, you know, the, Hodian said, the guy said he wasn't ready. So Hodian said, you want to do it again? And the guy says, uh, he didn't really want to, but he said, yeah, okay. So he does it again. And this time, Hodian, or uh, Hoyler took him out in about the same amount of time, but he slapped him around a little bit to teach him a lesson. And then I was amazed, you know, and I was kind of like totally in disbelief. And so I remember telling my buddy James Moran, uh, that that was there's something up here and um, Hodion after the guy conceded he says anybody want to take a shot at this and I told James I'm raising my hand you know because I was tough and I says I'm going to do this and James says you just don't do it and don't be stupid he said you don't know what these guys know and of course I didn't and I'm thank God I didn't and he said that because I would have got my ass kicked so James started training with the Gracies, and I lived uh, further south, and by Corona del Mar, I started training with Relson Gracie, uh, the cousin. And uh, we trained for a while, and Joe Marrera showed up from Brazil, and Joe Marrera was one of his masters. He's my age, so he was in his 20s when I met him, and when he first came to Brazil, and he, he didn't speak any English, uh, all Portuguese, and I speak Spanish and Italian, so it's got the Latin dialect, so we were able to communicate, which Joe liked. And uh, Joe is great. And Relson, because Joe was about 200 pounds, says, you know, and all the Brazilians, at that time, I didn't see very many big Brazilians, so he says, just train with this guy. 
So Joe started training me, and we kind of became friends. And after about two weeks, I told Joe, hey, you know, I'm really not convinced with jiu-jitsu. I guess I have a thick head. I said, let's go at it, me and you. You know, just just show me what you got and prove to me that jiu-jitsu is something. And Joe said, no, no, not now, later. And I says, come on. And he says, well, let's do it now. So we did it. And I'll tell you, he threw me around like a little girl. I felt like I was an eight-year-old girl. He was very gentle and, and nice about it because Joe's just a nice guy. He could have just humiliated me, but he just spanked me around a little bit and just dominated me, and I was suffocating, and you know how it goes. And I was sold. And so I told Joe, you know, I'll train with you as long as you're here. And uh, Railson and Joe had this big mishap. He just had his wife, Joe's wife, fly out and move everything to California. And he, um, he didn't have, um, he didn't have, um, him, and, him and Railson had this falling out, so Railson told him, I'm not gonna pay you what I paid you. It's always about money, and they end up getting upset, and Joe had nowhere to go. He tried to call me, but he didn't have my number, uh, the correct number. He called another guy that he knew, this older man called Cab Garrett, and Cab you know, went and picked him up. And the guy's in the country, doesn't speak any English, doesn't really have very much money. And Cap takes him in. He's a bachelor. You know, he's about 60. Took him in and, and let him live with him. And uh, a couple, about a month later, I get a call from some Brazilian. I can't even understand him. And it's Joe. And he told, because they told me Joe went back to Brazil. And they said, you know, I'm, I'm here. So we started, he said he wants to train me. And I said, yeah, you know. So I showed up at Cab's house, and he and I trained in the garage. And he and I would roll around, and he says, can you get me more students? And by the end of the year, I got him like 35 students. So we had all my friends and everybody in there training out of the garage, and we kicked in some money. We ended up buying a school or rent leasing a school, and so Joe got a start there. And, uh, and then you know, from that point, I've had the pleasure of training with Joe for years exclusively as his assistant and learning as he did all his private lessons, learning firsthand jiu-jitsu. From him teaching, you learn a lot when you're just there, um, and and that's how Joe got started and how I got into it. And what year was that about? Uh, I would probably say that was somewhere around 1988. Yeah, it was way back then. The the only other guy I knew that was training uh, American was like a, I remember uh, Craig Kakuk. He's the first American black belt, no doubt about it. There's a lot of controversy over who was what, and not that anybody cares, but Cook was the first one under Hickson. He was amazing. And what do you remember most about the things that Joe showed you in those early days? Um, well, first, the first thing Joe showed me was the effectiveness of jiu-jitsu. Because you know, you got you got to realize, you know, I had I had a couple black belts and and I was pretty tough and strong and uh, just physically fit and I played football and other sports for years and um, it didn't matter, it was all technique and and I was a lot stronger than Joe and he 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 will he dominated me and I'll tell you this out of all those years of training with Joe, I never made him tap once. As a matter of fact, I've never seen any student make him tap which is something. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. But he's an amazing teacher, and he, he looks at everybody's game, your body type, 
what your tendencies are and he's like a, just a scientist you know jujitsu is a science it, it's it's from one thing to another leverage and it just all the techniques you always continue to you always learn year after year after year there's always more to learn and he's teaching it at that whatever level you're at and he looks at your game the best teacher i've ever known looks at your game and gets it right and that's why Joe right now, he's traveling the world. I mean, he's every time I call him or we talk, he's in Greece or Poland or some other state. You know, he's always traveling, doing something. So you mentioned that you helped recruit Joe's students, and a lot of those guys are now masters themselves. Black belt's been black belts for years. Who would you say some of the toughest guys that you trained with were or some of the toughest guys that Joe would bring in? Maybe, I don't know if he brought in other guys to teach. Who, who are some of the best guys that you remember from that time? Well, uh, over the years, you know, the, the toughest, um, most talented fighters that I trained with and grappled with, um, I would say first and foremost would be Marco Hua, you know, R-U-A-S, and it's, um, he was king of the streets, and you know, that relationship with Marco and Joe, you know, Marco's Valetudo, and Joe's Jiu-Jitsu, and you know about that whole rivalry back in Brazil, Joe shook his hand, and Marco's just the nicest guy but he's one of the baddest dudes I've ever trained with. That's no doubt about it. And uh, he, um, he's really something. So it, I'd, say, I'd say probably Marco. Um, then his protege, uh, Pedro Rizzo. Um, I've got kicked a few times by him. You know, he was a um, champion kickboxer and he's got legs like tree trunks. And when he hits you, you've seen it in the UFC, these people just drop and they give up almost just from getting hit in the thigh. And um, I've had that. He's he's definitely a badass, and he's he's a well-rounded fighter. Um, then I would say Chemo. You know, we we met Chemo in uh, Puerto Rico, and um, at a UFC. Joe was doing the. I think uh, I'm not sure, but I think that one was the David and Goliath, where he was fighting Paul Varlins, the polar bear, a six foot seven monster, and um, Tank Abbott was there and Tank Abbott was fighting somebody and uh, we got in a fight with Tank Abbott right on the floor and uh, during the UFC um, it's a long story I don't know if I even want to talk about it on the air yes yes I do <laughs> but it's uh, we were sitting there I was at the cage you know that picture I showed you us walking down um, from the UFC me and Joe and Alan Goes um, who's another good fighter uh, we were walking into the cage and uh, we, were, we were at the cage and the door used to you know, opens up and uh, Frank Shamrock I was talking to Frank and Ken was gonna fight chemo later and um, we were watching actually no we were watching Ken and um, chemo fight and Alan goes and Joe both from Huntington Beach California uh, Alan no Alan goes and uh, Tank Abbott and all tanks posse were there um, Tito and a couple other guys and they were sitting first row and all the fighters got to sit first row after the fight and they had words and they had words for a few days before that and I was watching uh, Tank and Tank got up with his guys had some guys go around this side of the cage and he went around the other side and he was going to Sunday punch uh, Alan Goes and he ran, and as he walked over, he was winding up, 
I ran from the gate all the way to the other side of the uh, arena or the other side of the ring and jumped on Tank's back right before he was throwing that punch. And Alan saw it, and Alan dove for Tank, and then someone jumped on Joe, and then I jumped on somebody else, and there's this huge brawl right there during the fight on the floor. And they stopped the fight, and they um, it, it lasted for a while. Security was everywhere. People were throwing chairs, and it was like 100 degrees in there, by the way. I mean, Puerto Rican. It was, you know, the UFC was almost completely... Uh, finished because it was they called it a brawl and everything and um, so you had to go to Alabama or Puerto Rico back then and so we were in Puerto Rico and uh, anyways the fight got all broken up and um, uh, that was an interesting interesting time you know at the UFC but at that UFC later uh, Tank was going to fight us and he had all his guys and there was only a couple of us and we're standing there, and Chemo stands up, and he joins. He didn't know, we didn't even know Chemo, and he says, "Man, it's uneven." And we thanked him, you know, because Tank turned the other way because Tank knows Chemo's a badass. And Chemo, I mean, he wasn't afraid, of course, and he was he was right there. Him and uh, I think he has a, his buddy Jose is a great guy, and he um, he became friends. And he and Chemo said, "Joe, can you train me?" And uh, Joe says, absolutely, I'll train you. So they, they we're both in Orange County, 15 minutes from each other, Newport and Huntington. And uh, he started training chemo. And, and chemo, you know, he was a great fighter, but he didn't know any jiu-jitsu. So we were able to submit him. He's one of the smartest, fastest learning students I've ever seen. I mean, he caught on, and within just a few years, he was really, really, really good. So he ended up being a really good fighter. And so this was before his fight with Hoyce? Or that that Joe train or, or this was after his fight with Hoyce, yeah he he was scheduled to fight, um yeah Ken Shamrock that's when he fought Ken Shamrock, and um I can't remember who won I think I actually think Ken Shamrock won, but um so it was it was that it was during that fight and then it was the day after, you know they had a big party UFC has a party after Art Davies used to run it back then. And he had a big party, and the tank was there, and everybody was there, and there was a lot of bouncers there because it was just it was really uh, edgy and shaky. So anyway, that everything went okay there. But then the next day, Tank was looking for some revenge, and Chemo stepped up and kind of put a stop to it. But it was something fun times. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. So you showed me a, a picture of you walking out with Joe for Joe's UFC fight against Paul Verilons, the the giant monster. Um, and what was training for that? Like, I assume you trained with Joe leading up to, to that fight. Can you, can you maybe talk me through what that was like? Well, uh, we tried to find some big guys that were like Paul Verilons. You know, it's hard to find a six foot seven, three hundred pound monster, but we found some pretty big guys to train with him. And um, uh, each of us would do different things with Joe to prepare him and we would get to rest but Joe would continue training you know so he was just spent and um, that you know months before we continued with that so he can get a feel of a big guy he only went after big guys I was a very good puncher so he liked you know I used to box so he used to like me to throw the punches at him and the Brazilians back then I'm telling him I probably shouldn't say this but Brazilians were terrible boxers. They just were. They're masterful grapplers. But there's two things that I think the Brazilians, uh, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu did evolve. 
was they used to leave their feet open for leg locks, you know. And remember Tuktaroff, the Sambo guy? I mean, he got in there and he'd get those legs. So they had to be more protective of their legs. So they learned to protect their legs a little bit better. And that was part of the training. And, um, and stand up. You know, there's a lot of guys that could stand up because jiu-jitsu's theory was just take them down to the ground and pound, you know, and control them. And a lot of guys um, would do that. But you look at Chuck Liddell, like he's, you know, he's a, he's a decent grappler, but he's masterful standing up. And when you come against a guy like that, you can't get him down. He's going to box your ears out. So um, it was an evolution in jiu-jitsu. But I, I would say, so Joe would we'd train that way. And then we would show up uh, probably about five days before the fight and train, just train and train and train before the fight and then rest. And, uh, and that was it. We'd go in there and do our thing and then party the night and the next day and go home. So I've heard that Joe had two very tough matches with Hicks and Gracie and that there was a big mutual respect between Joe and Hickson. And I'm wondering, like, you know, obviously I want to ask about, about Hickson, whether you get to spend any time around him, but, like, are there, are there folks that you remember Joe having matches with that you thought, that guy's incredible? Were there guys that Joe particularly admired that he wanted to compete against? Well, the one guy Joe admired the most was Hickson. Um, Hickson is amazing, and both Joe and Hickson are coral belts. What you know, uh, one step from red belt. Um, he did have a legendary match in Brazil before he came to the United States with with Hickson, and evidently, it it just went the full length, the full time frame, and Hickson Hickson ended up winning barely, but he won. And you know, they're they're friends. Hickson and Joe are good friends, and. Um, Hickson's amazing, you know. Hickson's amazing, and and Joe has a lot of respect for him. But uh, and I think they've they've met a few times, and it was good matches. And not very many people could say that, you know. And, and speaking of Hickson and Marco Hua, you know, those two had, there was a, a war there, you know, with the Valetudo, and um, later uh, Marco Huas came out, and and Joe met with Marco, extended his hand, they became friends, and the jiu-jitsu world was very upset. They didn't like it because that's their enemy, you know. Valetudo was for years in Brazil terrible, but somehow uh, through Joe and Marco's such a nice guy, um, they they it just they accepted it and and they became friends. And Marco's friends with a lot of the Brazilian guys, and I think that I think that war that rivalry just kind of fizzled because they're all in the same boat. And they all do the same thing, and they're all Brazilians, and they all got great fighting techniques, and so it may exist somewhere in Brazil, but in America, I think everybody's cool. So that's a good thing. That's something Joe did. You mentioned the Gracie Challenge, and then you mentioned the sort of rivalries and like almost, you know, real serious altercations. Did you ever see anything like, and you mentioned that, that it's di different in America, but did you see anything like dojo storms or like the, a guy's upset at another guy and bunch of guys go to his gym and or did that not happen here um i've heard stories of that happening in different schools i know it happened at hickson and um you know there's a story that hickson had the flu and some guy came from japan with press you heard you hear that story released and hickson got out of bed and he was pissed and he shows up and he just spanked the guy and made sure everybody took the video of it and said take that home and he left i mean he's just a badass but um we we used to have those those uh, uh, types of um, challenges just at Joe's school, you know, because there was there wasn't 
at the time, Joe's school was the only school in um, in Orange County. And you know, since then, there's there's several schools out there. But uh, Joe would get calls for people, usually wrestlers, grapplers, who you know are great on the ground, know what it's about, and they're really just curious. But they want to fight and they want to see what it's about. And he would ask us, you know, are you ready? You want to do it? So people would come in our school and he'd say, Mark, go ahead, you know, and you'd have to, you'd have to, you have to step up. The liabilities back then, people didn't think about them like they do now, but um, there is liability. I mean, I remember uh, a day that I wasn't going to train. I came home and I was with my kids and we we're sitting in the jacuzzi. It was probably about five o'clock. And I, my wife comes out with the phone and says, hey, I, Joe's on the phone. And I get the phone. And Joe says, hey, we got a, a match. We got a, a challenge. Four guys. I need you to come on down. And so I said, okay. And I got out of the jacuzzi, drove there. And there's four guys. And Alan goes and um, a few other guys. And, you know, and just one, one at a time. And, you know, then they become believers. Did you get to train with Alan Goes much? Where that, was he a regular training partner of yours? Um, he was for many years. Uh, then he opened up his own school. Um, Alan, when he first came to Brazil, you know, he didn't he didn't really speak English, of course, and didn't have a lot of um, uh, I think he didn't have a lot of money. So he kind of hung out with Joe, and he did his thing, and um, he would train with us quite a bit. You know, great uh, great guard, great on his back, masterful triangle. Um, we'd get guys coming in and out of Brazil all the time, which was kind of fun. You know, they, they didn't have much money there. There wasn't a lot of money in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because nobody has money. But these guys would make it to the U.S. and infiltrate California and Florida and New York. And um, they, they, would, uh, they would make some money. And a lot of them would live in the school. You know, they'd live just day and night Jiu-Jitsu, sleeping on the mat, just diehards. I'm always fascinated to hear about the, the days before the, the UFC started because there, there's little money in fighting now, but there was really none then, and so you, you had to have guys that really, really loved and lived jiu-jitsu. D- do you remember, le- le- when you said that you had a bunch of Brazilians come, was there anybody that's still around that we would have heard of, anybody that, that whose name? Oh, yeah, like um, Claudio Franco. Um, he, was a, he was a great competitor in uh, jiu-jitsu sport in Brazil, and he's in, like, the Santa Barbara... Um, Carmel area of California and Marco Venises, who's a good friend of mine and I trained a lot with him uh, he's a master in judo and jiu-jitsu and uh, he, he runs Beverly Hills Jiu-Jitsu have you heard of that? Uh, when it started, you know, Mark Kerr um, Taktaroff uh, Marco Hua, Pedro Rizzo um, a, a bunch of guys were there, oh, Boss Rutten and you know they all they all had little dojos in the dojo and it was a, a great location great place you could go to different places they had all trained with each other and um some serious talent there and uh, marco venesis is still there he owns it now he's taken it over people have come and gone um, but it's still a, a legendary place to train uh, beverly hills jiu-jitsu you, meant, you mentioned Boss Rutten, and you'd mentioned before that you did struck up a friendship with Boss Rutten. I'm wondering, did you get to train with him much? Did you hang out with him much? What are you, like? What were some of the times with Boss like? Uh, most of the time I trained with Boss, we, were, we, we watched the fight, um, and then we went to a bar, and, um, and just he's a character. He's Mr. Personality. He's just what you see on TV. He's fearless. 
Um, a real stud. I mean, the guy's solid as a rock, and he's not that big. I mean, he's only what 195, and which is a respectable size, but he's solid as a rock, and he's um, you know he partied like a rock star. <laughs> he has a good time. He's fun to be with. Um, on the mat, um, I hadn't trained with him on the mat. I've watched him train with other other guys, and um, but I never trained with him. So back to Joe for a second. Like one of the things that always struck me about Joe is that he's famous for his pressure stack pass, his old school pressure stack pass. And I've heard stories of him even breaking guys' ribs, not with, not with anything other than pressure. Um, and so I'm, I, so I guess was that something that you saw? I'm sure you felt it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I felt it and I learned it. And you know, Joe, when we first started grappling, he'd get on top of me and. Um, He'd feel like he was 400 pounds, and I said, Joe, how do you do that, you know? And so he showed me, and he says, you know, he, like he looked at my game and said, you know, when I was training, I was solid muscle, I weighed 238, and um, I put my weight on people and smash, you know, and just smash people and just, just smother them, and it was a great defense. And so Joe taught me how to do that, taught me how to make me weigh, you know, 500 pounds, and it's possible, and so um, yeah, Joe, Joe's Joe's masterful at everything, and I, I, he's just. And the thing is, he's my age. You know, I'm 55. Old oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, is he? His birthday is July. It was July 4th. He just July 3rd. He just had it, and um, he uh, he looks great. I mean, he. I don't know how the guy has just dedicated his whole life to jujitsu and. You know, I had all these aches and pains. I've had 10 surgeries, shoulders, knees, ankles, Achilles, you know, everything, broken thumbs and fingers. But he has managed to stay healthy and limber. And, um, yeah, it's just amazing. But he's done well. He, uh, his, his game is just amazing. So you mentioned, you know, you, you had played football as well, took a lot of toll on the body. Obviously, you had a bunch of injuries. I'm wondering, when you were training at that time, did you compete much? Were there even comp- jiu-jitsu competitions that were prevalent in America at that time? Oh, yeah. There, there were At first, there wasn't. The first maybe uh, three or four years. But uh, Nelson Montero in San Diego, Joe, and, and then the Gracies would start putting together uh, tournaments. So every chance we got, we'd go train and we'd, we'd, we'd compete in a tournament. So there were lots of tournaments. And, and you know, after the 90s, uh, during the 90s, it really became um, where there was tournaments almost every three months. You know, there's tournaments all the time in different places. Um, the biggest tournament that I was ever in was the uh, Black Belt Challenge. And that was in... Um, I believe it was end of 96, 97. Um, but it was a Korean Air sponsored Black Belt Challenge at the Bren Center. And what the, what the concept was, was they were going to put 10 um, American Black Belts against 10 Brazilian Black Belts. And it was going to be, you know, the Brazilians versus the Americans. But we didn't have enough Americans, so we had to borrow a couple of guys from Brazil <laughs> to be in it. And, you know, guys like Joe, James Baran was in it, Carlos Gracie, John Lewis. Um, the Machado um, brothers, uh, Roy Harris, who's somebody who doesn't get enough. Do you know who Roy is? Yeah, he, he's I've trained with him for years, and um, he is uh, he's a great guy and and just 
lifelong jiu-jitsu man and he's got interesting stories in his own right you know where he's been and what he's done but he's had a school in san diego and uh he was in that black belt challenge against uh i believe it was jean jacques i don't know if it was higgin or jean jacques machado you know machados are the cousins of gracie's and uh he did fantastic i mean he was a new black belt and he trained uh he, he he competed against the machado master and held his own for a long time yeah do you remember who you competed against oh uh, yeah i'll never forget you know i was supposed to uh go against a guy called conan you know conan the big tattoo guys played the ufc and he for some reason at the last minute bailed so i was kind of bummed and um not that i was really excited about going against him but i was ready for it i mean back then anybody i'd, I'd want to do anybody anybody they said so joe says i got this big guy from brazil if you want to train if you want to compete against him let's do it and i said okay let's do it well i said how much does he weigh he says probably 250 and i said that's cool that's fine well it shows up and it's this guy called tata otavio who is about eight years younger than me and a good hundred pounds b bigger than me. And he was, I think he was like a third degree uh, black belt and he was really heavy. He was like six, four and weighed a, a good 350 pounds. And, and I still got Joe and I, I saw him and I said 250 and everybody laughed. and. They, people told me I looked small, like when I was in the ring with him. <laughs> so that's how big he was. But he was a solid rock, and he was hard. And you know, we 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 went the distance. Um, we um, it was actually a draw, but he won by aggressive points because uh, I had to be real careful because the last thing and Joe told me this: the last thing you want to be is underneath him. The place you want to be is on top of him because you put your weight on his and his weight. It would be great, but uh, and I, I have I'm good at throwing, and uh, I couldn't get him. I couldn't get a, a good throw on him. He's just too grounded and he's 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 knowledgeable. So he's a good fighter, but they went to the world in Brazil. The, the winners would get a free trip to the world in Brazil, and uh, since he won on aggressive points, he took it. Yeah. So you mentioned that. Um they couldn't find 10 American black belts at that time because you were one of the very first American black belts. Looking back on that, what does that mean to you, being one of the first guys? Um, I don't know. I really don't think a lot about it. I just, I just, it was just the evolution of jiu-jitsu. I started when I started, and it was, I, I, because I had knowledge of martial arts and jiu-jitsu, I realized the value of of jiu-jitsu and started training right away and once you start training you have an addictive personality where you want to follow through it and then it becomes something you love and then you just constantly do it and your numbers you end up being one of the first guys in there um so i think that's that's great um i, I like that but um there's so many great competitors so many guys that i've trained with during that time some of them got hurt and then they'd have to stay out and come back and I mean, it took me um, it took me a good you know eight nine years to get a black belt, and and we had to train hard. It was old school. Joe didn't hand them out. I mean, you really, you know, like they say, and the last thing you want is a belt that doesn't fit. And if it doesn't fit, you're going to get your ass kicked because jujitsu you compete day in day out with with your friends, you know, and they're going to spank you around if you're not ready. So. 
uh, when I was ready, as long as Joe said I was ready, we did it. And, um, and you know, we, we competed against a lot of guys. I, I had a lot of guys from Brazil come that were third and fourth degree that we did well with. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. But, like, on that tournament, um, the Black Belt Challenge, I remember they interviewed everybody after. Every person had their own school. Every person uh, did this for a living. And then they come to me and they say, well, what do you do for a living? What do you, where's your school at? And I says, I don't have a school. And they said, well, what do you do for a living? And I says, I'm a stockbroker. <laughs> and they said, stockbroker, what are you doing here? We don't see many of you guys. And I said, well, you know, been, it's what I do and this is my hobby. So it was a hobby for me. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of the injuries came in for me is because I, I didn't have time to stretch, warm up or cool down. You know, James Baran, who is a legend, uh, James, um, he uh, he and I were training partners before. He's the guy I went to uh, the first challenge with um, to watch, and um, he does it for a living. And he's always kind of been this thing. He's been a bachelor too, and uh, so he had all his free time. But he'd come and he'd warm up, and then he'd cool down. And if there's anything that's so important as that. I'd come running from the office. The market in California would close at 1. We'd have a group of black belts with chemo and all these other guys that would meet at 1 o'clock, and I'd have to leave about 15 minutes early. I was five minutes from the, from the school in my office. I'd run in there, change, come out, crack my neck, and then say, let's go. You know, and I didn't have the whole warm-up. These guys are all warm and sweaty and feeling good, and, and then I would just do it. And then when it was done, I'd run up, change my clothes, and put my suit back on and then go to the office and, you know, these guys would sit around and talk about, let's go get something to eat and take a nap, you know, and, and then train the next class. And so that's where a lot of my injuries, I think, really came from is the uh, not warming up and cooling down. So, What do you remember about the day you got your black belt? Uh, probably Joe's Brazilian barbecue. You know, <laughs> I would probably say that because he gives out, he does this amazing Brazilian. Have you had it? Oh, my God. You know, there's a place over in Briar Creek that has Brazilian barbecue. I mean, it doesn't compare to Joe's. And Joe had a buddy, this big guy, who wasn't a jiu-jitsu man, but he, he was a cook. And, you know, they, they make Brazilian barbecue so excellent. They could take a piece of tri-tip or steak or fish or anything, chicken, and with garlic and rock salt and olive oil and whatever they do. Joe's shown me how to do it, and I, I tried doing it, and it never even compares. I don't know what they do. I t he swears he's not holding anything back, but it is amazing. But So we would always have a barbecue after, and that was great. Um, I, I felt a sense of accomplishment. I mean, it really, seriously, it was a, it was a lot of work, and um, it was a lot of fun. And it was a lot of pain and suffering because I remember at one point telling myself, man, I I'm always hurt. I mean, I'm constantly limping, constantly have a pulled groin or a pulled muscle or a broken finger or something. And that's just how you train and how you live. And I'd come into my office with black eyes and, you know, how you get the big scar on your forehead and, you know, your chin and um, bruises. And my clients would look at me and say, what, what are you, <laughs> what's going on here? And I tried to keep it from my clients that I was doing that and not show any signs of that type of aggressive sport because back then it was really considered barbaric and um, a lot of people didn't like it. 
So did Joe give you a heads up that you were up for your black belt, or is it the kind of thing you walk into class one day, he surprises you with it? Did, you, did, did he run you through any tests? I just don't know how it was done at that time. Oh, no, no, no tests. I mean, I don't, I don't know what they do now, but Joe, Joe doesn't, he didn't do tests. I mean, it, the testing went the whole career long. I mean, he watches everything, and he would walk over and hand me his brown belt and say, we're going to have a ceremony in a week. You know, to officially give it to you, but you got it. You know, and then with the black belt, it was the same thing. He says, "You're ready. Here's I want to give this to you." And you know, it was an emotional thing. He says that we're doing a ceremony in about two weeks, so you know, we'll officially give it to you there. And then, then he gives it to you. So yeah, but it was a. It's always a sense of accomplishment. These guys, everybody works so hard, and, and any even a. I used to always say it was amazing. You know, I I thought I was such a badass before jujitsu. But you know, you take a good blue belt or a good purple belt, and they could hold their own at least with just about anybody, and maybe not get hurt at at, at least not get hurt, but most likely win the fight. So I mean, I, my hats off to everybody that trains. So did you get your uh, the black belt ceremony? Was that just for you, or were there other guys that got their black belts at that same time? Uh, Rick Lacero and James Moran, yeah. Yeah, Rick and James, I remember, were there. And then there was some brown belts and purple belts and everything else, you know, a few people. But, um, yeah. So what, like, over, over your time in jiu-jitsu, what have you seen change the most from when you started training before the UFC, about 1988? Um, what, what, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the art? Well, I'd probably say the early changes would be... Um, the complete fighter notion, you know, how you got to be a stand-up boxer, how you got to be, you know, uh, everything. You've got to be a puncher, a kicker, a stand-up, a grappler. You've got to, you know, transition to whatever the fight takes, which is really MMA, you know, and, and jiu-jitsu has evolved into that, I think, where they they're concentrate more on the punching. Back, back when... You know, Helio Gracie and, and the Gracies would do these big challenges. You know, a lot of those guys were, most of them uh, had no idea what to expect, and they just take them down, and they didn't have much of a takedown defense. And you could see how easily they took them down and, um, and brawl them. And some guys were exceptional athletes that would put up a pretty good fight. But, it, you know, little guys, big guys, and their techniques work. But when people became more knowledgeable of how to avoid takedowns and, and how to throw punches when someone's coming in for a clinch. It had to change, you know, strategies had to change, and I, I see a lot of that happening. And uh, later on, I think um, the game has gotten even uh, faster. Um, transitioning from one technique to another, there's not as much time, so because people are getting so good. They're getting so so good at transitioning from one position to another whether you, you as a big guy a lot of the big guys were slow and you know and I'd, I'd like to grapple with the little guys that were 180 190 because they're so quick and it keep you on your toes and I used to always think god these guys are tough I'm sitting there smashing the crap out of them and they're surviving and they're getting out and trying to apply a you know triangle on me or whatever um but they um the big guys now are, are, are getting real fast and quick and you know it's it's I think there's been a lot of changes and and of course Dana White when Dana White when Art Davies sold it I used to know Art Davies uh, when they sold it and they um, uh, took it over and Dana White and went to the Fertitta brothers and got the money and all that um, Dana White's really saved jiu-jitsu because they you know 
he made it so it's legal everywhere. It was it was almost extinct. I mean, we were at a crossroads, I think, at one point where it was going to go uh, out the window. Every politician, everybody, you know. They did a news, uh, at one of the Bren Center tournaments that we had, they did a, a news, um, Channel 5 News or something, with James and me, and they interviewed us. And they really made it look bad, like we're a bunch of monsters. And, you know, the public looks at that like, you know, these jiu-jitsu guys are crazy monster fighters, and, you know, it's just people didn't like it. Now everybody loves it and respects it. So it's come a long way. Uh, did you ever get to train with Elio Gracie? No, I, I, not many people do. I, I think that Elio is just the Gracie family trains with him, and um, he's he's up he's he was up he's up was up there in age you know before he passed away, but uh, he was up there in age and he um, the family would train with him and you know, I understand he even in his old age was an amazing amazing person. He he really is was the things he's done for his family. All those kids and you know bringing jujitsu so far, you know the Gracie family is instrumental. Is there anything that I haven't asked about that you think it's important that people know? Uh, oh gosh, I don't know uh, what I could think of saying about that, but um, I, I'm I'm glad that jujitsu has taken its uh, taken the the path that it's taking. Um, it's become the dominant art the most popular art and uh, it's become a household name or everybody knows people used to not even know what jiu-jitsu was for years and I, I mean there was times where I would get into a, an altercation and I'd always really uh, never was a bully I'd always try to protect people or you know, avoid fighting but sometimes it would happen guys thinking they're tough as can be and that you just spank them I mean it's just it's almost not even a match and um it's 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 nice to know that uh, more people know it now. I think uh, the violent part about jujitsu, where guys train like we used to train LAPD and Marines, and Big John McCarthy was one of our students, and um, uh, I think that um, he, you know, these guys that uh, train in jujitsu, when you get the guys that are looking to just fight, just go out on the street and beat people up that don't know jujitsu, that that really ticks me off. That really it's a bummer because there there is no no chance that the guy that doesn't know jiu-jitsu is going to survive. <laughs> He's going to get humiliated or embarrassed and I think that I don't think that's good. I mean, it's but it happens all the time. Even sometimes in schools if the if the instructor isn't really watching what's going on, you'll see some of the more dominant guys giving the other guys a hard time and it just pisses me off. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I've enjoyed this a lot. My pleasure, Jeff. Um, good luck with all this stuff. I'm glad that you're pushing the words of jiu-jitsu and all the things that go on because it's a fascinating um, transition to, to what's happening in this world today with the, the martial art world coming from where it did back when Bruce Lee came to town and Chuck Norris. And, you know, back then, they, remember when they were kicking and punching and doing all that? That was awesome, wasn't it? And you thought, everybody thought, that's just stay away from guys like that. They're badasses. And they were. And then next thing you know, uh, jiu-jitsu comes to town, and those guys are taken down. They used to, a lot of jiu-jitsu guys used to call that ballet. And then they take them down and, and ground them and pound them and, and control them. And so it's, a, it's an evolution. Who knows what's next? Can't wait to find out. I hope I'm still around. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
that's the show for the week, folks. We're going to continue to try to get members of the Dirty Dozen and other important figures in jiu-jitsu history on the show, along with other great guests from North Carolina and beyond. Let me list a few of those guests that are coming up. On August 7th, we're going to have Daniel, the executive branch, a local MMA fighter who fights in his uh, most prominent uh, setting yet on September 23rd in Atlantic City, New Jersey. We're going to talk to him about that professional fight. On August 14th, we're going to have Valerie Worthington, author of a new book, former Black Belt World Champion and amazing jiu-jitsu instructor, on the show after she trains at Pendergrass on August 13th. On August 28th, we're going to talk to Bryce Mahoney, local Purple Belt. You might know him from Triangle Beans and Bowls, selling acai bowls and cold-pressed coffee at events. Bryce has a pretty amazing life story, and we're going to get into some of that with him. And uh, something I haven't announced yet, Daniel Frank, who is one of the most active Black Belt competitors, avid referee with U.S. Grappling, uh, teacher of many classes at Revolution BJJ up in Richmond, Virginia, and who will be competing on Toro Cup 4, is going to join us in the studio the day after Toro Cup 4, September 11th, to break down his matches, to break down the other matches, and to talk to us a little bit about his life story in jiu-jitsu, including the book that he wrote. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Daniel. If you'd like to suggest other guests or uh, send us questions for any of the people that we're going to interview, you can get at us, cagesidewhoop at gmail.com, on Twitter and Instagram at cagesidewhoop. Um, we're on Facebook at Cageside Radio. And again, if you enjoyed the show, uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or whatever podcatcher of choice uh, that you like. And please leave us a review so that more people can discover the show. Uh, I'm Jeff Shaw. This is the Cageside Concussion Cast, and we will see you all next week.